You're listening to episode 33 of the National Centre for Writing podcast with me, Simon Jones. It's Wednesday 27th of February here at Dragon Hall in Norwich. Every week we talk about the writing life and discover exciting new projects. And this episode we've got something really special for anybody who is interested in narrative design, interactive fiction and new ways of telling stories. Since I was about 10 years old, I've always been fascinated by computer games and interactive fiction. And the notion of a story being able to adapt to the reader's choices has always been exciting and somewhat terrifying. Some of you might remember the Choose Your Own Adventure books from the 1980s, which involved flicking backwards and forwards to different page numbers based on your decisions. Then in the early 90s, I dabbled with writing my own text adventures on a computer, struggling with complex languages such as Basic and Inform. These days, it's a lot easier to experiment with branching narratives without needing a high level of technical or coding competence, using tools such as Twine. But it's still a form that I've never quite been able to crack. Somebody who definitely has mastered it is John Ingold, co-founder of Inkle Studios. The studio has produced award-winning adventures for mobile and PC, including the Sorcery series and 80 Days, and they're only weeks away from releasing their latest project, Heaven's Vault. John somehow found the time to talk to us about his career, the founding of Inkle, and the creation of each of their games, as well as diving into the nuts and bolts of what it means to write interactive, branching fiction and dialogue. There's incredible insight here from one of the most experienced writers in gaming, and if you're interested in games writing, this is a must-listen. I recommend getting your notebook ready because there are a ton of great tips in here. So you founded Inkle Studios back in, was it 2011, I think? Yes, I think so. I can't quite remember when we founded it anymore. It was me and my friend Joseph Humphrey, and we had been working at PlayStation and got kind of tired with with that environment and the limits that it put on what you could do. I think it was about 2011. It was whenever the iPad was just becoming this thing that people thought was really interesting and might be a great place to do interesting new experiences. And we... we thought that true thought that as well for our sins um mm-hmm. was, was that only eight years ago yeah that's about right it has i was trying to figure out i was trying to remember what sort of technology was like back then because it feels like a long time ago and also not a long time ago uh yeah it was kind of right at the end of the kind of playstation 3 xbox 360 era mobile phones like the iphone had been around a while but android wasn't quite there yet and uh yeah yeah, i think that's about right the playstation 4 hadn't yet come out the ipad it was just about the release of the ipad 2 when we founded Mm -hmm. um and generally everyone was very much more optimistic about technology and digital i think and it hadn't really normalized yet everyone was excited to see what was the next thing going to be and no one really knew what would what would land and what wouldn't like publishers were very we started working off with book publishers who were in a really interesting position of trying to treat the iPad as a new format for their content, for text-based content. And all the publishers were interested in that, and not really very many of them are anymore. I think a lot of them have had their fingers burned by not quite knowing how to land stuff on technology. But it was a, yeah, it was a, it was a frontier time, which it doesn't feel like anymore. <laughs> yes, it was when like, every new iPhone was properly exciting because it was doing new stuff, rather than these days where it's all kind of standardized a bit. Yes, exactly. And everybody would want to show you their new app that made their voice sound like a duck or something, which <laughs> nobody ever does anymore. But like everybody really did at the time. Yeah, we've culturally moved past like duck apps, haven't we? Um, I think we have, yes. 
So I was, I was kind of looking at games that came out around 2011, and it was things like Skyrim and Dark Souls, Portal 2, the usual Call of Duties and Assassin's Creed and that kind of thing. Um, and then you guys set up a company to do interactive kind of text-based games. Mm. I was wondering kind of what pushed you in that direction, because it wasn't necessarily kind of an obviously uh, big market at the time. No. So I have a bit of a history on it, basically. I've been, when I was a kid, when I was about 16, 17, and we got our first computer, which wasn't a very good computer, the only thing it could run were the Infocom games, which are text-based games where you type in what you want to do and the story tells you what, what happens next. And they were adventure games, really. They were kind of the prototype adventure games. And I played a lot of those. And then I found a way to make my own. And I started programming those when I was kind of in my early 20s, I guess. So I was always interested in writing. And I've written kind of stories and plays and things like that. But I would write these text-based games as well. And I got very interested in that space of a game where you are inside a story delivering every kind of beat of action to that story. And I'd always been trying to make these things very accessible because I felt like there were really interesting ways to tell stories and really interesting things to engage with. But the problem with that kind of game is you have to know what to type in for the computer to understand what you're doing. And most people don't, and most people don't want to learn. And that's fair enough. They're, they're quite fiddly. Um, so for a long time, I'd been trying to, trying to solve that problem and trying different interfaces and trying to make things that worked more smoothly. And I showed some of these to Joe while we were at Sony, these things I've been fiddling with. And Joe has no particular interest in text or reading, but he does love graphic design. And that kind of inspired him. So we suddenly saw that there was an opportunity to do this thing that I've been playing with for ages that I was convinced had merit, but was quite hard to get to people, but to do it in a way that was beautiful, that we could get to people. And here was this device, the iPad and the iPhone, which was in everybody's pocket and felt like a really natural place to do something interactive and reading based that just wouldn't feel like a gimmick. And all of those things at the same time made it seem actually, it felt like a very obvious thing to do, um, quite a natural thing to do. And I think at the time we, we really had this sense that this might be genuinely a, an entirely new, well, that's not fair on everybody else who was doing similar work at the time, but <laughs> a, a medium, a new mainstream form of 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 media this kind of interactive storytelling thing and I, maybe it was even there, there are a few examples of it out there now and it is a sort of regular thing that you can find on the app store but not quite in the way that we envisaged it perhaps right yeah and i suppose that you know the, the whole concept of the app store and how that's that's changed massively over the years but i suppose people at least were more used to the idea of reading a book on an iPad or a phone, more so than they mm. maybe were on a computer screen. So that kind of gave you an in from the start. Yeah, exactly. And I think people were people were experimenting with just using their phone as an e-reader because it was something that their phone could do. And I, I guess people still do use phones that way, but I feel like they don't do it nearly as much. Um, this was also before Twitter really dominated, and like Facebook about as well i think dominated people's use of technology so there was this window in which people were looking for things to do with their telephone devices but they didn't quite know what to do whereas now i think everybody has three four apps websites that they just routinely churn through every day and there's less interest in finding new experiences in general so it was quite a good mm -hmm. time for, for kind of catching attention and for trying new things 
Yeah, it feels like also because it was right at the end of that kind of PlayStation Xbox era before the new ones arrived and the kind of indie scene was just really getting started and you had stuff like Double Fine's Broken Age on Kickstarter suddenly going massive and it, was, it felt like there was this interest in stuff that wasn't necessarily the big blockbuster Call of Duty type stuff. Yeah, that's definitely true. There was a massive indie boom just about that time. In a way, we almost missed the indie boom completely. We we started off on the App Store when most of the indie um, games were coming out on Steam, on the PC platform Steam, really. That was the kind mm -hmm. of place where most activity was. And then by the time that we moved, we are now on Steam as well, and we moved our games over to PC as well. But by the time we did that, Steam was already starting to get a bit overloaded with indie games, and the mainstream market was coming back to full strength a bit, which it, it very much is now. Um, so we sort of managed to be almost entirely in the wrong place from where the bulk <laughs> of the market was. But that's actually quite good when you're trying to stand out and do something different and original. Um, you know, when we were working on the App Store, making interactive text games there really were only two other companies doing anything comparable to us and and that puts you in a position where you can really understand what other people are doing and really understand what's not there and what you can do that will be different which is kind of brilliant whereas yeah if you want to make a platformer on steam right now <laughs> then you're in big trouble because there are thousands hundreds and thousands of them um yeah so it was quite an interesting place to be and quite a good time for it yeah, and uh, a big part of the reason that I wanted to get you on the podcast is not only because your games tend to be very text-focused, but also because a lot of your games are actual adaptations of books, which is not a particularly common thing in, in the gaming world. I think it tends to be that developers are influenced heavily by maybe movies and TV, but less so by books. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, you started off with Frankenstein, I think, and then you did the sorcery books and obviously Around the World in 80 Days became 80 Days. Um, I was wondering, like, why books? That's a really difficult question that I don't actually know the answer to, but I think it's something to do. I mean, it's partly because we were working with text anyway, so it's a natural thing to think about text based experiences and books are text-based experiences in a way that that film isn't really but i think i think it's more for me that as a human being i've in, i enjoy film and i enjoy theater but i've always really enjoyed the depth and complexity that you can get from a book and i think the the thing which books do which is special is the ability to focus on any given particular thing at any one time in quite a fluid way. So what I mean by that is if a book wants to focus on what happens over a very large scale of time, it can do that and choose to ignore the details and that will just work. I was reading a book about the Dark Ages the other day and it described 900 years of history in about five pages, really clearly and succinctly. But then again, if it wants to delve right down into one character's particular thoughts over a 10 minute period, it can also do that. And that transition is effortless, that neither of those feels... Um, out of place within a book. They, they all make perfect sense. Whereas if you try to do that kind of thing in a film, there are techniques for each of those problems, but they are genuine techniques. You have to think of a way of doing it and then execute that way of doing it, whether it's a montage or a whatever it is. Um, and I think in, in trying to tell stories in games, a lot of people look to film, but unfortunately the interactivity of a game and the passive nature, the passive interpretive nature of watching a film are really very much at odds with each other all the time. 
like when we're watching a film, we're often looking at a character's expression and thinking, oh, I see he's feeling this, but he's thinking about that. And we're, we're kind of interpreting what we see on the actor's face. And that's what makes a great actor great is they can do a bunch of stuff at all at the same time. Um, but games are terrible at that because game characters are very bad at it, acting. It's no fault of the actors or the people making them. It's just a really, really hard problem. Um, you know, most human actors are not very good at it. So, of course, most computer actors are not very good at it either. Um, and that's just how it is. It's difficult. Whereas when... So if you want to make a really strong, rich narrative experience, we felt that if we move into a text environment, we can actually deliver as good as a book can deliver. We can actually deliver the depth and complexity because we can use words just as expressively in a digital context, whereas... Uh, when you try to tell a visual story, you're actually much more limited in a digital context. It's a much harder problem to solve. And it still is, you know, 10 years later, it's still very hard to get computer actors to really emote, especially in a flexible, fluid way. Whereas text, you can really make it work and you can make it very variable. You can make it dynamic. You can make the words rewrite themselves to suit the exact context that the player has found themselves in without the player noticing that you're doing it. That's not technologically hard, but it's incredibly expressive. Um, so, yeah, I, I think text has always fascinated me and as an experience and as a tool to work with. So in terms of what to adapt, books was a natural place to look. Uh, we can't take credit for Frankenstein. That was the idea of Dave Morris, who wrote that. We actually just provided the engine um, mm. for authoring it. And then we did the graphic design and kind of packaged it up as an app. And it was a really interesting project to work on. Dave's a very experienced game book author and he brought um a lot of literary depth to that um story i think he told it really really well it was written really nicely it had a really interesting way of interacting with victor frankenstein you were kind of his conscience or something asking him questions about what he was doing mostly are you sure this is a good idea but um but having played dave's frankenstein that made me realize a lot of things about what worked in adapting from a book and what didn't work from adapting from a book and one of the core issues, I think, was the, the existence of a goal. Mm -hmm. um, in modern storytelling, everybody says the protagonist has got to have a goal that they're having a trouble achieving all of the time. And uh, yeah, that can drive a story and that's fine. But uh, a book like Frankenstein doesn't really fit that model at all, actually. Like you can twist the narrative to make it sound like it fits it but the reality is that's not actually what's going on in that story and that makes it quite hard to adapt to a game context where the player really does want to have a rough idea of what it is they're supposed to be doing um so i think it was pretty much after we finished frankenstein that the idea for adapting 80 days around the world popped into my head as being a book which curiously enough has a very explicit goal it has a score in the title and <laughs> that idea to, it took a while to just state and really land on exactly how we could do that um but that idea was just so exciting and of course the sorcery books themselves were game books so they kind of sat within that slightly game space anyway so adapting yeah. them wasn't too hard but um so I, I that was quite a long answer but I, I wouldn't say i was good at or even necessarily compelled to adapt books into games because a lot of books just won't work and that's fine um but there is quite a rich body of work there to think about and to be inspired by. Definitely. So that's, that was a pretty good answer for something where you thought you might not have an answer. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> with, um, 
With sorcery that you mentioned, that, that's a really interesting example because obviously it existed originally as a game book um, back mm. in the 80s, I think. Yeah, um, that's right. So it was like a, a paper uh, version of this kind of branching narrative. And you know, theoretically, you could have taken that and turned it into a kind of ebook version where it's you know, the book with hyperlinks. Like that, that mm. would have worked in a way as a digital version of sorcery. But instead, you sort of pulled it apart and then put it back together again around the notion of the world map. And I was wondering where that came from and how far you knew to kind of push it away from its source format. Yeah, so sorcery was a really, really enjoyable project to work on. So it was four, it's four connected stories and four connected books, like a saga, basically. And for the first one, we were very wary of... Um, annoying fans basically we didn't really know how long how how large or how rabid the fan base would be so we were worried that if we adapted things too much then the the break in nostalgia would be would be something that made people cross rather than excited so we were actually quite cautious with our first adaptation but one thing i was really clear on is you can't just take a paper game book and put it on a digital format and expect it to work um because you have a massive pacing problem. When people are reading a book, the business of turning from one page to finding another paragraph is quite faffy and annoying to do. So they want a certain amount of reading to justify the effort of turning to that page in the book, turning to paragraph 328 or whatever it is. <laughs> in a digital context, people don't read properly. They skim read. We, we all know this from when we look at an article on BBC News or something. What we tend to do is just very quickly skim the paragraphs and if there's one that we don't get or we think looks particularly interesting then we go back and review it but we read incredibly we, we read in a much more throwaway way when we're looking at a digital device I, i'm not sure why we do that but i really do think we do so if you put a normal choose your own adventure into a digital context people won't read any of the pages and then they'll press the button to get to the next link which will take them there instantly and then they don't read the next page and within two clicks they have no idea where they are or what's going on <laughs> Um, and that you can see that in in other adaptations, I think, of, of things um, that use that kind of pacing. And I always feel a lot of people do make apps that have that structure. And I always feel that they're very, very hard to engage with because you really have to forcibly stop yourself from doing this, despite the fact that everything in the construction of the game is asking you to burn through it as fast as possible. So when we took... Um, yeah, when, after we did Frankenstein, the next project we actually did was a game called Down Among the Dead Men, which was a game book written by Dave Morris that we adapted uh, ourselves, and we didn't publish it until much later. But the process of adapting that, we discovered that if you took these paragraphs in the game book and then broke them into their beats, into their tiny micro beats, and gave, gave each one of those to the player, instead of being tedious, which it would have been in a paper choose your own adventure, taking these minor choices that didn't really matter and having to faff about with pages, what it felt was it gave you much more of a rhythm and a sense of time. So a scene in an original book where a character might walk into a room, have a conversation, find a thing and then go out, which you know should take about 10 minutes in real life. It would be maybe a 45 second to a minute scene in a film. If you just translated it directly, it would take no time whatsoever. But if you broke it into its beats, you could make it take four, five, six turns. And that's the metric of time that the player experiences. So we found that by adding choices, you cause the story to actually happen beat by beat by beat by beat. Um, and you gave it a clock. 
so we had to do it. So when we came to Adapt Sorcery, which was a project that we we felt could be really successful, we sort of felt that we couldn't just put the game book into the text into an ebook and sort of ship it, because if we did no one would even begin to engage with it at all. But if we broke it down into its moment by moment by moment actions, we could create this thing where you really were in the middle of the story the whole time. And I think what we found was that we had no idea how far we could push that in the first game. When we built the first game, it took a while. We came to the second game. We decided to make it more open. We spread the locations around. We had the map in the first game mostly as an aesthetic thing. In the second game, we started to wonder, well, could we get people to plot routes or to go around in loops or to try and sort of navigate the maze of streets? Can we really play with this map concept? And then by the third game, we had a map which you could edit as you played through some sort of magic, thereby changing the locations you were going to before you went to. And it all got very, very involved and very complicated. Um, But what we found was more and more and more that once we had this framework of small choices with small reactions building over time, to create a coherent scene, we really could do a huge number of things because we had a core loop that really focused people and made them feel they were actually doing stuff. Um, in, a, in the end, what it boils down to really is you walk into a room and you want to talk to someone and you get to choose what you say line by line by line. We have a rule that the character is never allowed to speak without you, the player, deciding exactly what they say which is hard to stick to sometimes because the plot might require something. Yes. But it's very, very good for keeping you in on the ground, basically, and not just sort of saying, oh, I'm just going to write my story and the player can just like it and lump it. Yeah, um, and I think what your games do as well is the decisions you're making are not always massive decisions. So if you look at kind of classic role-playing games and some of the older Bioware stuff, you'll get choices where you, know, you either help the granny cross the road or you shoot her dog. And like, that's the kind of yes. like, opposing choices you have. Whereas in your games, you have lots and lots of tiny micro choices, which individually maybe aren't actually that important, but they build up the sense of a character that you're playing. Absolutely. And I, I really, I'm really very, get very passionate about this. Um, the reason that if you ask a player of a Bioware game why the choices are like that, they will say it's because I want my choices to matter and I want to feel that what I'm doing is important. And that's fair, but they're not right. The reason why Bioware build the games in that way, the reason that most people build the games in that way is because actually doing lots of branching is technologically difficult. So um, the way that we write our games is in a scripting language that we've built explicitly to help us do this kind of stuff. And because we're in text, not graphically, we can afford to be more branchy and to push the envelope a bit more. But once you have the ability to carelessly write small branching choices, you start, I think, I really do think, to discover that actually all choices can be made to matter. And we know this from life, right? There's this bizarre idea that choices in games have to be enormous. But when in life did you last choose to help the granny across the road or to shoot her dog? You've never (laughs) made that choice ever. And when we do make really big choices, you know, very occasionally you'll make a choice to accept a job or not accept a job or whatever. And those are incredibly difficult decisions to take that are very unpleasant to take and take a long time. But in life, we are making choices the whole time. We think, when you get on a bus you think well there's only there's all these seats which one shall i sit on do i want to sit near that creepy looking guy or do i want to sit near that crazy looking man over here or where oh now the creepy guy is starting to talk to me what do i do about that Uh oh he's looking at my phone screen do i care do i not care these tiny little moments of interaction with strangers that we have on the street a shared 
glance, like a smile at someone who's got a child who's misbehaving rather than a frown at someone. Our lives are stuffed with this stuff and it definitely affects us emotionally and it changes everything about our day. And sometimes these things spin off in all sorts of directions and you find yourself having conversations with people you never expected to talk to because of a tiny thing that you did. And this is the joy of it. This is the joy of life. This is the joy of storytelling really is, is not, it doesn't all have to be people banging doors down with their fists, like (laughs) the little moments of interaction that bring a world to life are why we're reading anyway. Um, So, you know, if I'm playing Dragon Age, I want to, I want to be thinking about the detail and the texture of this world. I don't want to be just thinking about whether I'm burning a village to the ground or not, because (laughs) then I'm not really in the world. I'm somewhere floating above it, like, like a sort of God viewpoint. And yeah, I, I think every time that we've, we've put a game out where we've managed to put people really, really low down into the story to really drop the camera, as it were, right down to, to, to the character's shoulder and let them choose everything they say and every grimace and every frown and every raise of their eyebrow in 80 days. You know, so many of the choices in 80 days are like, I, Phileas Fogg will do something annoying and you, you raise your left eyebrow in disdain or you rate your right eyebrow in contempt. That's the kind <laughs> of choice. And every time we do that, people love it because they're... They just get to feel that momentary connection of joy over and over and over again without the stress of thinking that it might matter too much, but with the trade-off that sometimes you'll do something that spins things off in an interesting way or loses you an opportunity or gains you something wonderful. And you think, wow, that's so precious because I could so easily have missed that. And it just seems to me crazy that anyone would argue that that's the wrong approach and people do venomously argue that it is the wrong approach and there are people who will play our games and say i don't see what the point of this is none of my decisions matter i could just click anything and the story will carry on but i do think these are people who aren't actually reading the words and (laughs) i can't do anything about that if they're not going to that's 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 their choice to make um Uh, so so yeah so go on yeah so i was just going to say this this really that drills right down to the whole kind of reason that i find this kind of writing exciting is how how long can you sustain constant interactivity without feeling like you're cheating and and how much how can you ground it all moment to moment and just it brings it to life definitely um it seems like a good time to talk about 80 days um which uh, suddenly from, from the outside kind of looks like this sudden leap for the studio uh, in terms of success and recognition at least um yeah. and i was wondering like when you were making it did it did you feel, did it feel like something special during production or was it just the next project? 80 Days was a really weird one. We, as I think I said before, we had the concept for it about maybe a year and a half before we actually started building it. And um, at the time we were working on the Sorcery series and that was going quite well. We had this sense that we should do 80 Days because it was a good idea, but we didn't really think it was our main project. The idea was we'd do it, on, do it in the background and kind of push Sorcery forward at the same time, which is why we went off and found another writer. So we, we found Meg Giant, we hired Meg Giant to do kind of the bulk of the writing for us. And I thought, oh, well, I'll just let her do the writing and I'll tidy it up and then we'll publish it and it'll be fine and then it'll be done and we can get on with our lives. <laughs> and she sort of went off for about six months or something and we didn't hear from her. And But that's okay, because we weren't in a rush, we were doing something else. 
And at some point I checked him and said, how's it going? She said, oh, I've been reading all of these books and researching airships and I know all about this and all about that. And I'm really worried about diversity and representation of the wide world. And, and I was like, whoa, OK, you're taking this very seriously. Fair enough. Um, and then she eventually about, yeah, it must have been seven or eight months later. I mean, I think she had other work as well, but she started to deliver some scripts to us. And there was something there was something really magical in them even from the kind of earliest scripts, which got bashed about quite a lot before they they kind of found their way into the game. And we started to just get this glimmer that there was something very special there, that the uh, the concept was much stronger than we'd realised. And so Joe and I put Sorcery down and we started to work on 80 Days and, and Joe started to build out the the, the technology, the, the app, the, the globe and all the systems that make it work. And I started to edit Meg's content and write a bit more content for the game myself and the more that we did it the the more that we realized it was very very difficult i remember there was a point where joe said that making 80 days was a bit like literally biting off more than you can chew you you just the whole time you you put something in your mouth and then you're going to go oh and you can't really get your tongue around it and it's just oh god and it, it it just won't fit and then you finally manage to sort something out like whether it's how the banking system works or how the travel system's going to work or the clock or whatever it was we were thinking about and then next week you'd pick up something else and do it again um and it was incredibly hard and there were several moments of revelation where we had to really rewrite huge amounts of stuff because we'd suddenly changed a core assumption about the way it was structured but the more that we did it the more that it it started to have this real spark and i think it was the humanity of it i think that was the thing that we saw was that somehow we'd built a game environment we built a, a kind of world and a concept where you could have choices that were just about people talking to other people and they were interesting and engaging and they had a gameplay effect so they didn't feel like a waste of time but they weren't gameplay focused you couldn't really try to min max it you weren't trying to increase your stats you weren't trying to like play a nice character or a rogue character or any of these easily defined labels you were just in a moment with a person having a little emotional connection and somehow it was this vehicle for telling stories about humans, which we'd never seen in a game before. And sorcery isn't really. Sorcery is mostly jokes about goblins, um, which was really fun to write. <laughs> like, but it, it, you know, it has moments of emotional connection, but nothing like as many. And I think, yeah, there was a point where we suddenly realized that this thing had a had a magic that was going to be really hard to to not take very very seriously. I actually thought the game wasn't going to do very well in the end because I thought it was far too camp for the market. I thought that the market just wouldn't wouldn't allow something that was so fundamentally camp. And I was totally delighted when I found out that I was utterly wrong about that. Um, and yeah, that just wasn't wasn't even an, a shade of an issue for anybody, including gamers, which was which was wonderful actually. With 80 Days, it's interesting because you've got things like the inventory and there's shops and you've got that kind of sort of health meter. Um, mm. But like balancing it so that readers, like traditional readers, I suppose, don't get put off by too many game mechanics, but players don't get put off by too few must be a really unusual balance for you to have to try and strike. Yeah, it was It was definitely tricky. We, we used to talk about... Um... We used to talk about the parent test. It was whether we could give this to our parents and they would be able to play it. Because uh, Joe and I both have um, our parents are kind of academics or they're quite literary people. They read a lot, but they have absolutely no interest in games whatsoever. You know, they, they don't really know how buttons work on computer screens. And this sense of 
of trying to make something which just didn't feel fussy or complicated where and where what you were doing was natural and where the game mechanics were the story it was really important to us that if if you were doing something on the interface layer then it was a real thing that was actually in the world so either you were getting on a train and then the story would say look you just got on a train or you were if you were buying something from the market we wanted it to feel like you'd actually gone to the market and bought things as much as possible there are the occasions where passepartout will go to a market and buy a, a marble bust of apollo and fit it in his suitcase which is perhaps pushing it a little bit um but yeah and i think I mean, sometimes we argue when we look back over it and say, well, did we really need an inventory and market system or could we have made the game without it? And and Joe often says, no, I think we could have simplified it without. And I think, well, no, we really needed something to, to make you think, oh, I'm going to go to Vienna because of this gameplay reason. Oh, but I want to go to Paris because Paris sounds exciting. And I, oh, but I want to go to Africa because I've not been to Africa before. And to give you different reasons to make the same decision. So the, the core decision is where shall I go next? And we wanted to make sure there were lots of competing reasons to go to different places so that you had an interesting decision to take all the time and and by having different systems that that let you do that but but the nice thing about that is if somebody just doesn't care about the trading game about the buying and selling of items they can ignore that and still have an interesting decision to take because we had other reasons to go to places yeah it yeah, no, it so... was a real concoction it was yeah <laughs> there were lots of systems that were going to go in the game or that did go in the game that then came back out again because they were too complicated or they were too fussy or they just felt very arbitrary um so i think there was a there was quite a lot of balancing of those elements too yeah and 80 days uh, w then went on to win quite a lot of awards um i mean yes. a, a lot of your yeah, games have been well reviewed and well received but 80 days kind of looks like it went off the scale a bit you know it got it was on the best of the year list from the guardian New Yorker, loads of gaming websites. It, Time gave it Game of the Year and all this kind of stuff. Yes, and I was wondering. That was quite remarkable. <laughs> what that that kind of recognition? How does that affect the people who are working at the studio? And in terms of like what you do next? It was really hard, actually. Um, it was really hard. I think it. We we were quite burned out for about six months after. Eighty days. Well, the, the funny thing about it is 80 Days was very difficult. And then when it came out, it didn't actually do all that well. It got a few good reviews and the App Store featured it very nicely and it sold OK. And then it kind of bubbled out and it disappeared. And we released it in like sort of May, June, and we didn't know what to do. We got back on with working with Sorcery, but we had this sense of, oh, that was really hard. And it didn't really, it seemed to go well, but it didn't really sort of escalate. And then it was at the end of the year, it started to appear on Game of the Year lists and then it bubbled up and then it started to win awards and then, then suddenly it became this recognized thing but there was definitely this this period of blank in between where we weren't really sure what we could have done differently or something um but no i mean it's been it leaves you with this thing that you want to be able to do just as well again but actually you're not quite sure necessarily either what it was that made it so successful or there were elements of it which was just so special that they're very hard to recapture. So from like a design point of view, the concept of 80 days, the concept of having a score in the title of your game so that you don't need to explain what you're trying to do at any point to the player because they already understand. But having it be a thing which you can succeed at and fail at, but if you fail at, it doesn't actually matter because if you get home in 120 days, you've still got home and that's fine. But you can also do better at and improve your score. And that's all implicit within this same basic concept. That's extremely hard to replicate. We were very lucky to find that. 
so you sort of yeah we struggled a lot to try and come up with well what do we do next so we did sorcery while we were kind of thinking about it and and we're working on a game now we're almost finished on our, our kind of follow-up game which is massively ambitious again compared to 80 days but it took us so long to settle on that and and then there's all the, the kind of the personal stuff that comes out of it when when something is successful and you don't really know what success means and i, I know i know meg had quite a trouble with it because she got suddenly really vaunted as this amazing game writer of this project that she's written and she's very 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 good and very smart lady and, and very compassionate too and interested in lots of wider issues as well as her own writing but what do you do with that when everybody suddenly tells you that you're brilliant what do you do with it how do you move forward and it was weird for us as a studio because a lot of the reviews would sort of say oh you know meg has written this wonderful world and we would say well actually meg didn't write all of this game so what do i do with that as a writer when this has been my most successful thing and nobody even knows that i wrote any of it how do i cope with that and that is very draining actually and all completely irrelevant because it's nothing to do with the work that you did and it's nothing to do with the work that you're going to do or what you want to write about but suddenly this question of what do I want to write gets muddled up with what does everybody else want us to write what is it that we did that went well which I was very hard which was actually quite a rock and it was quite hard to get out from underneath um I feel terribly spoiled to complain about it but um yeah and, and suddenly I had a lot more sympathy for I don't know, for writers who I've enjoyed in the past who had some really good stuff and then wrote some really terrible stuff. And as a kid, I would rail about, rail against this. And now I think, oh, it's because they were people and they didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> I didn't really understand that before. Um, it, it, and it leaves us in this weird position now where our, our new game, Heaven's Vault, is just about to come out in, in, in spring this year. We're just tidying it up now. And I don't think it can possibly do as well as 80 Days did despite the fact that I'm pretty sure it's a lot better. And I just have to, you just have to cope with that. You just have to reconcile yourself to that. Um, but yeah, it, it was quite an experience. Yes, and Heaven's Vault's the first game you've put out, which is completely original. It's your own story and world. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. One of the things we really wanted to do after 80 Days was just to try and create our own world and our own IP and... Uh, you know, partly for financial reasons, like, um, and partly just to see what it was like to do that. And it turns out it was incredibly difficult. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, you have this real worry the whole time that, well, uh, if people don't quite like your world for some spurious little reason, like maybe they don't like the way that people dress in your world because it's a graphic game. You can see everybody. Maybe they love everything, but they don't quite like the costume design. And that's why they don't play your game. <laughs> that would be appalling. That would be awful. Um, but it's a real genuine risk that you can't get away from. So it, it's been quite exciting. And when the the concept behind it eventually came together and coalesced, and it's now really rock, very, very solid. And I'm very happy with the world that we've built. But for the longest time, I really had no idea what was going on in this world or why anything was like it was. And that was quite scary, actually, just this sense that no one was going to come and help me. <laughs> there was no there was no resource I could go to that would solve my problem. It was either going to be rubbish or it was going to be good, and it was entirely my fault. Yeah. Um, uh, in terms of the yeah. 3D world that you've got in the game, which is kind of much more fully realised than in your previous games, um, how, how has that impacted on the kind of stories that you're telling and the ways you can tell stories? Yeah, enormously. I miss prose. I miss prose powerfully. <laughs> um, 
I said earlier, you know, with prose, you can focus on whichever bit you want to focus on at any given time. And, um, you know, 80 Days has got bits where you're having quiet, intimate conversations with people and bits where you're hanging off the top of hot air balloons. And you just don't have that freedom in a 3D world where we, we have a limited animation style, which helps us to do a breadth of, of content and to have a lot of characters in our world. Which is something I was really keen on. It's just making sure we don't lose sight of having human beings in a game. But the amount of things that our character can do is necessarily very limited. And it's all dialogue. And um, yeah, no, it's changed everything completely. It took me a very long time to work out what sort of things the, the player could do that would be interesting and that we could also properly visualize. I guess it's a bit like screenwriting. There's a limit to what you can do because everything comes with a cost associated. That old screenwriting joke that you can't write, the army ran over the, the, army ran over the horizon. Um, and it gets cut down to one soldier walk down a corridor. And, uh, you know, they're very much that the whole time and trying to find something that let us tell an interesting story, but in a way that didn't didn't just break our ability to, to, to express it. But the more interesting thing from the writing point of view, actually, was learning how to pace the dialogue in the game. So the, the, when the characters are talking to each other, you can see their faces, you can see their expressions, and they're kind of cutting between each other more or less like a tv show it, it's slightly less it's not quite like a film because films don't quite frame dialogue that way usually so it's much more like a tv show with sort of three or four static camera angles but suddenly pace is incredibly important if you have one extra line of dialogue in a conversation and people lose track of what they're talking about or it feels like they're talking about the same thing over and over then suddenly the whole scene dies and becomes flat um so I've had to get a lot, lot better at pacing and making sure that I know what my subtext is and I know what my characters are talking about and why they're doing it. And there's no escape. The, a, a conversation has to have a beginning, a middle and an end. We can't just say, you can't just throw away, say, oh, and then we talked about this for another five minutes and then stopped, which you totally can in 80 days. If a conversation gets boring, you just end it. Um, you just don't have that option in, in this world where you're there the whole time. Yeah. So it, it, yeah, it's it's been quite difficult, actually, but really, I mean, really interesting. Yeah, most of our regular listeners are going to be mostly used to writing short stories or novels. Um, and obviously, telling a story in that format, uh, you can tell the story in an entirely non-linear way, but the end product is still this kind of linear sequence of words starting on page one, going through yeah. to the end. Um, you've done some of that, but obviously you've also uh, done all the stuff at Inkle, and I was wondering... This might be too big a question to, to answer, but like, how does the process differ in terms of writing branching narratives to kind of just straight prose um, in terms of the, like when you sit down at the desk, how do you approach it? So I get asked this question quite a lot by people who are kind of interested in interactive writing. Like how, how do you, yeah, how do you start writing branching stuff? Because people get a bit overwhelmed by the idea of not only creating a story, but creating choices in that story as well. Um, and the answer, annoyingly, is I don't really know how how one does it. But uh, I don't really know how anyone does any writing at all, despite having done quite a lot of it. I suppose I suppose it comes with this sense that when you're writing badly, you have some words in your head, and you put the words down, and you look at the words and say, "Are oh, these nice words that sound pretty?" And you can get quite far like that sometimes. And produce something that really looks like it might be meaningful but but the reality is that it isn't because you didn't come to it from a position of meaning you came to it from a position of just 
fridge poetry. And I think we've all written badly like that on days that we had to. Um, but when you're writing well, when you're really feeling it, you are in the world of the story. You are in the shoes of a character and you're looking through their eyes and you're listening through their ears and you're just trying to very quickly um, scribble down what's going on around them. When you're at your absolute best of writing, I, I think, um, is when you know the world and the environment so well, you can you're kind of just channeling out what, what you're really sure of. And when you're in that state, when you're in that zone of writing, it's a kind of improvisationary experience, right? Like when you're writing a scene like that, you'll you'll discover what the characters say to each other as they say it. And you, you might have an overview of where you want to get to in the end. In fact, you probably do. You have an outcome for a scene, but exactly how the characters manipulate each other to reach that outcome you sort of discover by writing and then the editing process you go through and you make sure it's as slick as it can be. And that's how you write a normal scene, I think. And actually writing a branching scene is completely, totally the same. You sit down with a scene and you have a rough idea of the target that you need your characters to hit, except there might be two targets that you need your characters to hit. Perhaps they'll agree to do something to help each other or they'll agree to start an argument which will run and run. And that's it. That's the branch that this scene is going to generate. But when you're writing it, you're in the process of discovering how they're going to reach those outcomes. And the only difference is that when your character opens their mouth to speak, they don't have to only say the best line for that moment. So when you're writing normally, you might get stuck because you want your character to say something and you think, well, they could say this or they could say that. And I'm not either of those would be OK. Which, which one shall I go with? And you, you go with your gut and you choose one. When you're writing branching narrative, what you do is you write both of them. And you see where both of them take you. And then in your editing process, you go back and you go, right, well, I've got this choice of a thing to say and I've got that choice of a thing to say. But I feel like as a player, I might actually want to also say this third thing. So I'll write that one in now and follow that one through. And kind of you, you go back and you embellish the work with the things that feel like they're missing. But that's a kind of analytical post process. When you're actually writing it in the moment, what you're really doing is just exploring all the branches of this of this world, of this character, of this environment that you have in your head anyway. And because it's in your head, you you know what those options are. You know what the two or three things that your character might want to say at this moment are. And you can figure out what the other characters would say in reply. And really, I think the main skill difference is working out how to bring branches back together again so that you don't um, just end up writing 200 scenes simultaneously. And that's a knack. Um, it's a very, it's an obvious strategy for keeping a story on track. Actually doing it seamlessly is technically tricky, but I wouldn't say it was any more technically tricky than when you're writing a play, making sure that the dialogue is the right length, that actors could deliver it without losing the audience halfway through a sentence, you know, keeping the pacing going, all of that stuff. Writing is always a balance between expressive content and technical limitations, and it is in the interactive context as well. Um, and then you, the more you practice it, the better you get at intuiting this stuff or having a sense of where good branching opportunities are and where you really mustn't let the player branch at all um, and all the other details that come with it. But I think people often take a very superficial look at branching narrative and say, all right, OK, something happens. You make a choice and it sends the story in different directions. And then you do that again and you do that again. Um, as if that was a good idea, which I don't think it is. 
at all really sometimes you might want to send your story in different directions but most of the time what you really want to do is just provide a conversation that the player can have a kind of react an action and a reaction sequence that they feel that they're part of and the actual outcome of that scene what happens next in the story the player doesn't really necessarily mind that much if this scene is going to end up with the character they're talking getting cross with them and storming out of the room well, they don't really mind so long as when they get to that point, it feels like it came naturally out of what they did. They're not, they don't need to replay the scene 200 times to check whether anything else could have happened. And I think one thing that 80 Days does really well is you, you play through a version of the game. And then if you go back to say, I wonder what would have happened if I'd have done this thing differently in Paris. We try our absolute hardest to make sure that you go somewhere else and you never go back to Paris again ever because there's always these other cities you could visit that will be more interesting than replaying the same scene again <laughs> to try and get a different outcome. So hopefully people don't do much structural analysis of your story when they're playing it because they're enjoying it. Um, just as when you enjoy a play or enjoy a film, you're not structurally analysing the breakdown of the beats of the scene. Hopefully you're just in the moment with the characters. And yeah, I think I think people, because it's new, because the branching idea is is newish and it's slightly confusing and it's slightly intimidating. People tend to approach it in a very technical way and when they're writing it, when they're when they're reading it as well. And that's very unhelpful for writing and it's very unhelpful for enjoying. And so a lot of our work is to try and remove that sense that the technical stuff is interesting from the player's point of view because i don't think it is actually they mm -hmm. should just be in the moment and when we write in our scripting format our ink scripting format which is free and open source and anyone can play with it a lot of the way that it's designed is to try and stop you thinking about the technical business of how you're going to structure your story and just get the hell on and write something um, as much as we possibly can and to try to move it away from being a thing that computers do to a thing that people do. Because um, actually the reality is it's tricky, but it's really not magic. It's just another kind of writing. It's just another structure of writing. Mm -hmm. I'm fairly sure that we could teach anyone to do it. Any competent writer could be taught to do it. But I do think they actually need to look at it correctly. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I remember uh, I used to try and write my own interactive fiction in stuff like basic or using inform back yeah. in the 90s and uh, yeah, there was that kind of high level of uh, just technical knowledge you had to have before you could even do the writing um, whereas things like twine and ink let you actually focus on the writing elements yeah exactly I mean I, I came out of inform that was where I started work and got eventually quite fluent in it so if I had an idea I could express it quite quickly using this this programming language but it took so long to get there and that idea of fluency really stuck with me when we were designing excuse me when we were designing ink that a core goal of it was it should be fluent it should be something that once you've learned some basic elements you can just do the thing you can just express yourself but one thing i think that ink has that something like twine doesn't is that extends to redrafting when you're redrafting ink that should also be as easy as redrafting a word document it shouldn't trip you up there shouldn't be any rewiring you shouldn't be thinking desperately about structure the whole time you should be able to just cut into things and throw them around and i think that's something we've really achieved and makes a huge difference it's one of the reasons why i think 80 days came out so well in the end and sorcery as well is that unlike most games it's incredibly closely edited 
both for like the content, but also like the length of sentences and the pacing and things like that. And that's something we were able to do because Inc. let us do that by being not technical. Um, yeah, so I think that really paid off. Yeah, that editing process probably brings you back closer to kind of uh, traditional literature, I suppose, in, in a way that maybe games aren't, certainly in the dialogue and the story, aren't necessarily edited to the same extent that a published book is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think also cinema, like it's people, when people are being inspired by cinema for making games, I think they forget how incredibly heavily edited cinema is both like during the filming process when they're constantly rewriting scripts on the morning of the filming session, um, which is perfectly normal industry practice. And then afterwards, when they film it, then the editor sits in a room with 200 versions of a scene and assembles something. <laughs> it's like and it doesn't even need to match the screenplay if it turns out that there's a better version in there. And neither of those things are possible in games, generally speaking, in the normal production process. Scripts are locked very early. They're recorded. They're motion captured. They're animated. They're lit. They're, and then by the time they come into game, you really can't cut them, actually, or it's extraordinarily hard to. Um, and that that's so limiting on a writer because you have these writers who have to turn up and just deliver something perfect without being able to see the finished product and um that's just not what writing is actually like like the very best stories are ones that you've told four five six times over because you've learned how to do it really well like that's it's a performance um so yeah i think that that editing is really important to us and moving into heaven's vault which is as you said is a is a 3d game that visualizes everything we're still, we're still running the ink engine underneath Heaven's Vault. It kind of is running a text adventure, which the game is then realizing as a 3D world with characters and movement and, and that kind of thing. And that was incredibly finickety to set up and very, very difficult to make work. But now that we've made it work, we're in this process now where editing it is beautifully brilliantly easy i can take a scene and i can completely change the dialogue structure of a scene i can i can make it faster slower i can insert an entirely spurious side branch i can add a joke i can do all of these things without risking anything without rewiring anything and it's really 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 fast um just the other day i was playing through a scene which uh just clunked it just clunked really badly and in a normal game i would have no choice but to cut the scene entirely or ship it as it was but as it was i I spent half a day, rewrote it, and now I've got something that I think is one of the best scenes in the game. And having that freedom is just so good. It feels so good. Um, and it's been very hard, hard won, actually. Um, and it's the sort of thing I would love to convince bigger studios that they need to be need to be making possible. But the number of constraints that they're working under is pretty high. Yeah, no, it sounds like you've managed to bring kind of some of the best uh, creative processes from you know writing a novel and apply that to games development in a way that gets the best of both worlds in a way i really hope so <laughs> <laughs> i mean for, it, for me it's just so much about um it's just so much about the human beings making the thing like you know 80 days is is good for a lot of reasons but at the core of it it's good because we had some human beings doing the things that they were good at that they really liked meg is fascinated by diversity i'm fascinated by kind of erratic human behavior and that's the mixture of stories that you get in 80 days really um but you know joe is fascinated by graphic design and that passion comes out in the way that the app looks and feels to play our artist was fascinated by the kind of the curious silhouette structures that he built for the game um 
and that comes out and just as soon as you can put people in a position where they can do stuff they actually love doing it just it shows at the other end it absolutely shows and being so I, I wonder if what we've really managed to do is just to put human beings into into narrative game development and we're not the only people doing that as well like the indie scene is full of individuals making games that are very very expressive of who they are and yeah they, they are really good generally they are really good when you can see the human being shining through and i think um it's all about taking mastery back from the computer for so long game development has said well this is what computers can do so this is what we have to do but actually the computers are fine and they're not very interesting really they're just a tool and it's only the people that matter the people writing it the people playing it and really we just want the computer to get out of the way so we can talk to each other yeah and i think that's something that we've really worked to do which has been a delight actually excellent well on that note i should probably let you get back to actually working on heaven's vault <laughs> yes. um, so thank you <laughs> thank you very much for your time john no thank you it's, it's lovely to talk about this stuff i don't get to nearly enough Thanks for listening and huge thanks to John for taking the time to chat when he probably had far more important work to be doing on Heaven's Vault. Head over to the Inkle Studios website if you want to know more about how to get hold of any of their projects. Please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast over on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify or wherever you happen to be listening. Reviews are massively useful and important so please do take a minute if you like the show. If you have writer friends, let them know about us as well. To make sure you're always the first to know about upcoming writing opportunities and events, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre, like us on our Facebook page, or sign up to our newsletter at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. As always, thanks again, keep writing, and I will catch you on the next episode. <laughs>